So good morning, guys. So we had a great, great first service, huge crowd this morning for us. So uh, we've had a good morning already, and we are in this series. And uh, just mention, if you're new or haven't heard kind of how we got in this series, uh, my wife and I were able to go to um, Israel back in April of this year uh, for a 12-day trip, and just absolutely incredible trip. I think I took like 1,200 pictures on that trip. So I was like, I, I really wanted to come back and share that experience with you guys. And then kind of unexpectedly, uh, we were asked to go back and lead a trip in September. So we ended up going to Israel twice this year. So um, it was a, just been, we learned so much. And I hope this series has been helpful to you guys to gain perspective about what Israel is really like and to, to bring the places in the Bible alive now. So when you read scripture and when you see things in the Bible that actually oh, it triggers and you remember, oh, that's what it looks like. That's where it happened. That's uh, how all these things are connected. So uh, that's really our goal in doing this. We're in week seven of, of eight weeks. So got one more week, um, and um, I'm excited about today. I, I, I'm guessing that for many of you, when I, use, when I say the word mountaintop, uh, you think about mountaintop experiences. There's something special about being on top of the mountain. I love hiking. I love getting to the top of the mountain. You have an incredible view. But in life, we have these mountaintop experiences. And it's like when everything just comes together, everything turns out the way we hope, we plan, we dream about. It's those times in life when we can hear from God clearly. Those are like mountaintop experiences. And throughout scripture, what we learn and what we see is that there are times, right, that we've had those mountaintop experiences when we really don't want to leave the mountaintop because it's so perfect. Um, you know, our first day in Israel, on the, on the first trip, you, you kind of, it's a long flight. So uh, we flew uh, that first trip, I think we flew out of Miami over there. And it's like a 12 and a half hour flight. Um, so you land, uh, you, you fly all night long, you land and it's, you lose, it's a seven hour time difference. So you land like 5 PM in the evening. So you eat supper and, uh, we drove a couple of hours to our hotel, which is up on the sea of Galilee and you pretty much go right to bed again. So it's kind of your, your body's off schedule a little bit. You, so we had a, you know, a good night's sleep. It was a little crazy. We woke up super early, but we woke up to see an incredible sunrise on the sea of Galilee. Just beautiful, you know, just to just and it's you're just soaking it all in. We had an incredible breakfast, a big buffet breakfast, and and then we load up on the bus. The very first place we went was not far from the hotel in Tiberias, and it was a place that I was not that familiar with. It was a place called Mount Arbel, and it's a it's a you call it a mountain, but it's really more of a cliff overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And so from this vantage point, you're looking out, and you can see all of this stuff, and um, I'm telling you, like for in, in the whole entire trip, to me, I feel like that was one of the most special times on the whole trip. First day, not seeing anything, and you're standing on this cliff looking out over the entire Sea of Galilee thinking everything that I read about in Scripture, like almost everything that Jesus did when he was in that region happened right here within sight. Uh, and there's just something special about that. So... Um, I want to show you a video and, and kind of talk about that a little bit, and then we're going to jump in today to learn more about life on the mountain. Israel is a land of geographic diversity, 
Despite its small size, it's only about 290 miles north to south and 85 miles east to west at its widest point. Israel has four geographic regions, the Mediterranean coastal plains, the the hill regions of northern and central Israel, the Great Rift Valley, and then the desert. But they have a wide range of unique physical features and even climates within those. The Rift Valley was formed when two of the Earth's tectonic plates moved in opposite directions, forming a deep valley surrounded by mountains. And if the Bible is any guide, there's no better place to meet God than on or around a mountain. At our first stop during our trip to the Holy Land, we visited Mount Arbel. Tradition holds that Mount Arbel is the mountain that Matthew mentions at the end of his gospel. Imagine the disciples climbing a mountain with Jesus. They wonder, what is he going to teach us now? From here, they could see so many of the places of significance from the three years of ministry with Jesus. At the base of Mount Arbel, you could see the village of Magdala, a place known for preparing and selling fish, and it was the hometown of Mary Magdalene. It was also the location of an early first century synagogue. A little further away is Capernaum, where Jesus called the fishermen to follow him, the place where Matthew's life was also forever changed, a place where miracle after miracle was performed. You could see the place where Jesus taught during the Sermon on the Mount. You could see where the 5,000 were fed. You could see across the Sea of Galilee to the other side and see when the de- where the demon-possessed man was freed. You could see where Peter was able to walk on water. You could see where the 4,000 were fed on the other side. They could see the shoreline below where Jesus had just met with them and restored Peter. Miracle after miracle happened within sight. A review, though, of both the Old and the New Testaments makes it very clear when it comes to being in a sacred space where you can meet God face to face, there's no substitute for a mountaintop. And now the disciples found themselves one last time on the mountain, waiting to hear from Jesus one more time. That last picture there was Mount Arbel, and a lot of those views were from there. And uh, and it just uh, just uh, hope that gives you some perspective. I'm going to jump right into the message today and kind of take off. We've got a lot uh, to cover. And I I just want to jump into the first point if you're taking notes. And it's simply this, right? Throughout Scripture, God uses mountaintops to reveal himself and his plan. Throughout Scripture, we see this over and over again. Go all the way back to Abraham. He asked Abraham to go up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. You remember that story? And yet God provided the sacrifice for uh, for for Abraham there on on top of Mount Moriah, uh, and so we have that story. But God was not done with that mountaintop yet. You may or may not know that Mount Moriah is also the location right where Solomon built his temple, the place where sacrifices were made in the temple uh, for the people's sin. It was on the same mountain top that Abraham went. The same mountaintop, if you go to the, I think the, the slide of the overview of Israel, uh, there's a picture just of the, the title slide there. I'll show you this too. Um, 
There we go. Uh, the, where the Dome of the Rock is today. The Dome of the Rock, um, and we'll talk about this next week, and the Alaska Mosque, which is right beside of it. That is situated on the Temple Mount area, the place where Solomon's Temple was built. Uh, that is Mount Moriah right there that we're looking at. Uh, and so it's so interesting to see how these things uh, interact in Scripture. Uh, another example I'll give you, and on Mount Horab, uh, Moses went up and experienced God on the mountaintop when he saw the burning bush. You remember that story? And so uh, Mount, that was Mount Horab. But yet when uh, God sent him back into Egypt to lead the people out, uh, Moses found himself again on a mountaintop to receive the Ten Commandments. It was called Mount Sinai. But what's interesting when you study it, uh, Mount Sinai and Mount Horab are the same mountain. So God brings Moses back to the same place. Uh, They're used kind of interchangeably in the Old Testament. And he brought Moses back to the same place to to hear from him again on the mountaintop. You have Mount Carmel uh, where Elijah experienced God in an incredible way. And he was able to call down fire and consume the sacrifices um, and consume the prophets of Baal. Had that incredible victory for God on top of Mount Carmel, which is up near the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And then uh, Jezebel started chasing him. And where did Elijah end up? Believe it or not, it was Mount Horab, right? The same place where Moses was. And you see this throughout Scripture. Israel is not a big country. And you see these same places that are interconnected and interrelated as you study Scripture. You see Jesus regularly brought his disciples to the Mount of Olives to teach them. and, uh, And we see... Um, that, that, that is just overlooking the, the Temple Mount area right there at the, the Mount of Olives. It's a place where God says that it's going to be split when Jesus comes back again. Uh, all these mountaintops that we see, uh, what they are, they're symbolic. They're symbolic of God revealing himself to us. They're a symbolic way to, have, to, to see this mountaintop experience throughout Scripture where God reveals himself and his plans to his people. And so whenever there was something important about to happen, it seems like we're on a mountaintop. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see uh, really three or maybe four really important times where he gathered his disciples with him on a mountaintop. And I want to talk about those today. Here's the first one that I want to talk about. It's at the Mount of Temptation, Jesus revealed his power. If, If mountaintops are a place where God reveals himself and his plan, we see that very clearly at the start of the ministry of Jesus. If you remember... Um, back, we talked about this uh, when we talked about the wilderness. Uh, Jericho it was this city uh, near Jerusalem, but it's kind of down in in the desert, and and but it's an oasis, and so it's a very it's lush and very tropical in Jericho. And Jericho, if you ever go to Jericho, you've got to eat a Jericho banana. Okay, they're famous for their bananas there. Uh, they're they're really. Uh, it, and it's weird, like when you go out to eat lunch, they actually bring you like, you think like we think about dessert, they bring you like a banana or a date or something like that for, for lunch, uh, for, for dessert. But here, I mean, you got that, but then right behind Jericho is this mountain that kind of overlooks Jericho. It's the, it's the Mount of Temptation. It's where Jesus went into the wilderness. I showed you some pictures on the other side of that and uh, a few weeks ago when you could see uh, just, the, the, just the desolation 
desolation for, for mile after mile uh, of just wilderness and desert there. And so that Mount of Temptation, right, that was when Jesus was baptized. He went to that Mount of Temptation. It was there where he fasted for 40 days and where he was tempted by Jesus. It was there where he proved who he really was because he was able to, to do something that we could not. He was able to resist the, the devil and his schemes. There were three temptations, right? The temptation to turn the stones to bread. Um, Jesus replied, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There was another temptation to use his power to, to lift himself up. And he replied, the scriptures also say, you must not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, the, the last uh, temptation was the temptation to, to receive power and control. And, and Jesus said, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And so what's unique about all of these, right, is, is it's going back to the scheme of the devil. Did God really say that? And he's, he's going against God in the flesh. And Jesus just said, let me tell you something. I know the word and I know what it says. And I know how to stand firm against your schemes and your tactics. And he just replies with scripture every time. And he's able to do something that in life, when we go through tests and trials, that we're, we don't always do the best job of not giving in to temptation. We don't do all, always the best job of not, uh, you know, of, of standing firm in what we believe. And, and yet Jesus here, he experienced what we experience, and yet he did not sin. Uh, Hebrews 4 uh, it really is an incredible passage that explains what Jesus accomplished here uh, in, in the wilderness during the temptation. It says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And what did the high priest do in the Old Testament? He was, uh, he was a representative of the people. He was a mediator of the people. He would go before God because the people were sinful. They could not go to God. The, the high priest would stand in their place on their behalf and offer sacrifices. That's what the high priest did. And here it says Jesus is the great high priest. He is the final high priest. He is the one who did what he, who accomplished everything that we could not do when he was baptized, right? John the Baptist says, behold, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, this is what Jesus came to do. If you wonder why we don't do sacrifices today, I've had people like, well, you know, the Bible talks about all these sacrifices and we don't do them today. It's because Jesus fulfilled all of that. He is the final sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. He was, because he was one of us, right, he fulfilled every requirement of that whole system of, uh, of, of sacrifice, and so and he is the great high priest. And I love what it says here in Hebrews. Because of that, because he accomplished what we could not do ourselves, because he is the great high priest, he understands our weaknesses. He understands what it's like to be tempted. He understands what we're going through. And instead of looking down on us and condemning us for that, he sympathizes with us. 
He cares for us. He understands, right? Uh, because of that, it says we can come boldly to him. We can approach him now. We don't have to go through a mediator. We have direct access to, to God. And because of that, we can receive his mercy. We can find grace when we need it the most. That's the power of God revealed to us through the Mount of Temptation. It's that now, because of what Jesus has done, because of what he went through, and yet he did not sin, we have access to the Father. We don't have to go. I, I love that you don't have to come to me and say, Mike, uh, will you pray for me and will you tell God for me? What? No, you can talk to him yourself. Now, I'll, I'll pray for you. There's power in prayer. But you don't have to go through me to get to God. You can talk to God yourself. And so I love that. This is, that's the power of God. That's the great high priest. But I also love that it shows us that just because we're tempted, just because we're tested in life, that's not sin. Jesus went through that, and yet he did not sin. You, you know, there are going to be times in life you are tempted and you are tested and you don't know what to do. And it's in those times, it's how we respond it's how we really decide what are we going to do as a result of this, right? Where do we turn? Do we turn towards our flesh and towards our sinful thoughts or do we turn back to God? That's really what this is about. He reveals himself. So that's at the start of his ministry. He's already revealing his power to us. Um, the next one I want to talk about is when he's in the middle of his ministry, and it's at the, the place known as the Mount of Beatitudes. The, at the Mount of Beatitudes, Jesus revealed a new way to live. And so about halfway through his ministry, we find Jesus um, in Galilee, right? Um, he's gathered the disciples, crowds are starting to hear about him. And he gathers them together and he teaches them a sermon. It's the longest recorded message we have by Jesus in scripture in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, it's kind of a tradition says that this happened in a place that's now uh, near Togba. And so um, we don't, and the truth is there's a lot of things like this in Israel. You don't know for sure exactly where it was, but you know it was close, right? We're standing on the shore, shore of Sea of Galilee. There's a mountainside that kind of slopes gently down to the sea. This would have been the perfect place. And it is kind of interesting that um, now there's churches that they've built to commemorate these locations. So you go to um, the Church of the Multiplication, which is where Jesus fed the 5,000. You pull out of the parking lot, go about 100 yards, you turn into the next church, which is the Church of the Beatitudes. You pull out of that, go about another 100 yards, and you're at the Church of the Primacy on the coast where Jesus restored Peter. It's kind of interesting to me that all three are within like 100 yards of each other. So I'm not sure that they built those out of where it actually happened or where they just added kind of convenience. You know what I mean? But that, it doesn't, the thing is, whether it happened right there, it happened most likely within a mile of there because everything is that close from some people even think he may have done this on Mount Arbel, but um, it's all right there together. And so this is the place, right? Matthew five, it says one day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down, his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. This is such a significant time for 
uh, Jesus and for his disciples because he starts to challenge everything that they thought they knew. Everything that they thought they believed, he's, he's kind of pressing back against and saying, let me kind of open your eyes to the truth. Let, let me kind of correct your way of thinking. Let me really t- teach you about what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what it looks like to truly be a follower. And so what did he teach? He taught them, hey, do you want to know who God blesses? Not really who you think it is. Not the people who are prosperous and wealthy and the people who have it all together and the people who are arrogant and educated. Let me, let me tell you about blessed are those who. And so he goes through those be- things we know as the Beatitudes, those statements. Then he teaches about salt and light and what you're called to be in the world around us. He talked about the law and I did not come to abolish the law but to accomplish its purpose. Matthew 5, 20, he throws this grenade on him. He says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're sitting there thinking, these are the most righteous people we know. These are the most religious people we know. They're doing everything that, the way they're supposed to, at least we think, and you're telling us that it's not good enough. It's not good enough then who can go into the kingdom of heaven? Then he, it, it, that's, you know, uh, then he gets into all this. You have heard it said. Let, let me kind of flip your understanding around that murder is a sin. Well, let me tell you that if you hate your brother, it's the same as murder. You've heard it said that adultery is a sin, but if you commit lust in your heart against a woman, then it's the same thing as adultery. He's teaching about making vows and divorce and loving your enemies. And that's all just Matthew chapter 5. And then he talks about giving to the needy and about prayer and fasting, about how to use your money and your possessions for good, about not judging others, about how to pray. I mean, he's just like, it's like rapid fire challenging all of their misconceptions about God. And then he gets to Matthew 7 where he says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow. And the road is difficult. And only a few will ever find it. He's preparing them. He's just telling them, uh, if you really want to know what it looks like to follow after God, it's not doing what's popular. It's focusing on who God is. And he's challenging just everything they know. And then he doesn't stop there. Verse 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. I mean, this, I hope that's convicting to you because I feel like that was the truth in the time of the day. There are a lot of people who were going through the motions, a lot of people who were trying to look good and look religious, a lot of people who knew facts about God. And he's telling them, I don't care that you're doing all these good things. Good things don't get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is is actually knowing God, not just knowing about God. It's truly knowing him. 
and it was true in the time of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's true in our church today. A lot of people, and this is a, I think this is a problem growing up in the Bible Belt area where we are. A lot of people think, well, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? My parents are a Christian. My grandparents are a Christian. I go to a church. I, I try to give money and help the poor. Those are all great things. Those things don't get you into heaven. You understand that, right? It's not, it, it's not being a good person. He's saying it, you can be, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to get in the, the kingdom of heaven. In essence, he's saying nobody is good enough. There is not a, it's not possible to be good enough to get your way into heaven, to give your way into heaven, to, to, do, to earn your way into heaven. The only way you can get into heaven is through faith. It's through knowing the God who created you. And so that's what he is revealing to us. And he's also telling them that if you are a follower of Christ, that means your life is going to be different. You're going to live differently. All this stuff he's telling them, this is how you give. This is how you uh, treat others. This is how you don't judge. This is how he's calling them to a higher standard. It's a standard of written on their heart, not just of checking off a, a, a uh, you know, a checkbox. It's, it's actually living your life in such a way that honors God. And, and I think that's another problem we see in the church today. People think, well, if, if I go to church and I join the membership, or if I go through this class, or uh, if I say, if I just repeat this prayer, that means I'm saved. And then I can go back in, to my life and just live like I used to. That's what people think, because I mean, this is what we hear, right? And it's and Jesus is telling us, if you're truly a follower of God, if you're going to follow me, that means your life has been transformed. It means every Paul says it this way: the old has passed, right? And the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. Everything about your life is different. There's a lot of false prophets, just like in the, the first century. There's a lot of false prophets now who try to get you away from God. And focused on yourself. And so what we've got to learn is church. We've got to wake up. We have a mission. We, we are called to live differently than the world around us. We're called to look different than the world around us. We're called to be different than the world around us. There's something different about us. And that difference is Jesus. And so that's in the middle of the ministry of Jesus. But then at the end of his ministry, he gathers his disciples one last time after the resurrection in Galilee. And at Mount Arbel, Jesus revealed our new mission. It's the last point. He revealed our new mission. And so the, the book of Matthew, it ends on a mountain just like it began on a mountain. It began, here's Jesus being tempted, and now we find ourselves um, on another mountaintop. And so this Mount Arbel, I'll kind of explain a little bit where it's at. It's, it's there between Tiberias and Capernaum. Uh, it, it's there on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, where most everything happened in the life of Jesus. Um, it's not far from Nazareth. And if you were coming from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee, you actually came down an old Roman road that came right at the base of Mount Arbel. That road was the major trade route that connected Egypt to the Middle East. So it was people all the time coming through here. It was a little cut, a little gap through the mountain right at the base of Mount Arbel. 
But you could also, there was kind of a, uh, it was a big cliff overlooking the Sea of Galilee on one side. On the other side, it was kind of a slope you could come up and just have this beautiful panoramic view of the Sea of Galilee. And so when we were there, we were able to hike up it. It's a pretty easy hike, probably a quarter mile, maybe half a mile up to the top. And you're able to stand there. Look, it's actually a nature preserve now is what Mount Arbel is. And so this was the place that we think that Jesus gathered his disciples. And if you go back to the timeline after the resurrection, I talked about this a little bit in the past few weeks, uh, but after the women found the, the empty tomb, they found the tomb empty, Matthew 28 tells us what happened next. It says, the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. As they went, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. And so the first thing Jesus does is gives them some instructions like, hey, just tell them to leave. They're in Jerusalem, Galilee, 80 miles away. He's like, just tell them to go up there. They'll know where to find me. I think this is a place that Jesus went often with his disciples to get, to get away and to pray. And, and so he, he told them, and we know there's a couple more uh, place, times where they witnessed him the, on the road to the Emmaus where he met the two disciples. Then he appeared in the room uh, with the disciples, but Thomas wasn't with them. And then he later appeared to Thomas. And, and so we, during this 40 days, a lot is happening. And then we pick up the story in Galilee in Matthew 28, 16. It says the 11 disciples left for Galilee going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. And so here we get to the point, it's like, well, you know, and this at first confused me a little bit. I'm like, well, why would they doubt? Because Thomas has already seen him. The disciples have already seen him. What are they doubting at this point? And then, to, to, and this is a good kind of, uh, exercise for us to help understand and how to uh, understand. We can let scripture interpret scripture for us is the, the theological way of thinking about this. Paul talks about in the 40 days um, after, Jesus, after Jesus, you know, during the, re the post-resurrection, the 40 days, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a description of what happened. So let's look there. And there, here it says, let me remind you, my dear brothers and sisters, of the good news of the gospel I preached to you before. So Paul is given a, a simplified gospel message here. You welcomed it then. You still stand firm in it. It's the gospel, the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what, what was most important and what we had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Just as scripture said, he was buried. He was raised on the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Now, just pause right there a minute. I think this, uh, I think the 500 people were there with him on the mountaintop. I think, I think the disciples went to see him and they're telling people, hey, we're going to see Jesus. I think people just started gathering and going with them. And so when, by the time they got to the mountaintop, there was a crowd again of people there waiting to see, is Jesus really raised from the dead? Did this really happen? And Paul is telling us, hey, if you don't take my word for it. These people who were there, who saw Jesus, many of them are still living today. Go and ask them. Go and talk to them. They'll tell you the truth. This is not some secret. 
It's plain. They saw him. They know. But I think there were some people who were kind of straggling back even then and saying, I'm not sure about all this. I think that's where the doubters were. And he, you know, and so we kind of, this is a crowd. You've got this people all around Mount Arbel. And then Matthew 28, we'll jump to verse 18. Go back to Matthew 28. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think what we're doing is, is gaining context for when this happened and why it happened and where it happened. But, and this is the passage we've all heard, the Great Commission, where God kind of gives us our, our mission in life. He's telling the disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm not done yet. And everything that needs to be accomplished is now going to be accomplished through you. This is your job. This is your new way of life. This is your mission. The, he's passing the baton, so to speak. He's telling them, this is what it looks like. You're going to make disciples as you go. Everywhere you go, you're going to make disciples. It's not a one-time event. And, and he's telling them, as you do that, you're going to baptize them. You're going to get them integrated into the larger group of believers. You're going to help them identify themselves as disciples, as followers of Jesus. You're going to teach them how to obey what I commanded you. And in essence, what he's doing, he said, you're going to make disciples who then can make more disciples, who then can make more disciples. And do you see, this is, this is the, the mission that he's given to them. Now, over the years, um, we've talked about discipleship a lot at Cornerstone. And you've probably gotten tired of it a little bit, honestly. And I hope, uh, I hope we've talked about it enough where you are getting tired about it because we're going to talk about it more. Because it's the mission of the church. I hope we, you just keep hearing this over and over again. The mission of the church is not, let's come to church on Sunday morning, let's sing a few songs, let's attend a Bible study, let's gain more knowledge, and then just get back to our life. That's not the mission of the church. That's not what Jesus died for. He died so that we could go and make disciples. It's not the, the mission of the church is not, let's, let's get together and let's pay a couple of people to do this for us so we don't have to. <laughs> That's not the mission of the church. You know, we're called to be a disciple. I love um, author Jim Putnam. This is what, how he describes it. He says, um, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. And then when he talks about disciple making, it's this whole process of entering into relationships to help people trust and follow Jesus. It includes the whole process from conversion through maturation and multiplication. In other words, we're not just, our church does not exist. Let's get people saved and let's move on to the next and let's get them saved. Our church, the Bible doesn't tell us to go and make converts. It doesn't tell us even to go and make Christians. It tells us to go and make disciples. Don't believe me? In, this, in the New Testament, how many times is the word Christian used? It's used three times. Three times. And a couple of those times, it's almost derogatory. They're, they're called Christians, you know. The, the, these are the people who think they're little Christ. Is literally what it means. How many times is the word disciple used? The Greek word is methetes. It's used 261 times. 
Somehow we've lost our focus and we've taken our focus off of this act of discipleship and act of discipling, this process of growing to become more like Jesus and teaching others to do the same. And we focus on Christians where, and I use that term, right, to, to just, we've used it to be all about us and not about teaching others. We, we've become inwardly focused. And so I, I just think about this and I, I think about churches and if we're not careful, right, we want to stay on the mountaintop. But Jesus says, no, you've got to go out into the valley. And that leads me to my last point this morning. And man, there's truth here. We meet Jesus on the mountaintop, but we really, really learn to walk with him in the valley. You may experience Jesus on the mountaintop. You, may, you, you probably want to stay on that mountaintop experience. There's another mountain I didn't talk about, the, tr the transfiguration, whether it happened at Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon. We're, we're not sure. Um, I think Mount Hermon. But Jesus gathered, you know, Peter, James, and John on the mountain, and, and they got to see who Jesus really was. And Peter, of course, being the brash one, he's like, well, let's just stay here. Let's, let's build a, a place to stay here on this mountaintop. Let's stay. And Jesus is like, no, we've, we've got to leave. We've got to go down into the valley. We've got to share. We've got to heal. We've got, we've got things to do. We can't stay on the mountaintop. I, I think if we're not careful, even as a church, I think people in churches like building monuments today. They, they like building monuments. Let's think about what we used to do and what's been done. And let's think about, let's remember and commemorate and, and be thankful. Let, let's turn church into a museum to honor everything that's taken place. You go through Europe today. What are churches? They're museums. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're just monuments to what God has done in the past. They're not really functioning today as a church. We're not called to be a museum. We're not called to be a monument. We've called to be a movement of people who are going out reaching others for Jesus. We're called to go and make disciples who then make disciples who then make disciples who make disciples. And that's the job of every single believer. How are we teaching others? How are we equipping them? How are we preparing them? And I'm telling you, it's not going to be easy. Now, you're going to learn to walk with Jesus when you're in the valley. When things don't go the way you anticipate, when things are falling apart around you, you've got a choice to make. Am I going to focus on myself or am I, go or am I going to draw my strength from Jesus who is walking with me? That's what I'm talking about here. And if you notice in Scripture, Moses didn't stay on the mountain. Jesus didn't stay on the mountain. They came down off the mountain to minister to people. And so with that, I want to show one last video from Mount Arbet. So we're standing here on Mount Arbel overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And this is a pretty amazing view here overlooking the, the entire sea. And in the distance behind me, uh, you've, got, um, you've got Nazareth, you've got Capernaum, you've got this whole area that Jesus spent almost 85% of his time doing ministry. And when I think about the Sea of Galilee, I think about faith. I think about Peter walking on the water. I think about Jesus calming the storm. I think about 
uh, just all the many times that Jesus demonstrated how following him meant really having a type of faith that changed you. Some people even think that where we're standing here was where Matthew 28, Jesus brought the disciples and gave them the great commission uh, to go therefore into all the world. And I don't know, I just look around me and just magnificent beauty all around us. We stayed in Tiberias last night. Um, we uh, see Mount Hermon in the distance with snow. It's snow covered. It's, uh, this is just a, a beautiful area as we overlook this, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. But I want you to think about something. What does it mean for you to have faith? Uh, what are those things that Jesus is calling you to trust him and how to follow him? And what does that look like in your life? Um, I, for me, this is, this is really challenging uh, what I what you know just how i understood the bible and how i understood scripture to see the places where jesus spent his time ministering to people so i'm going to close with a simple passage and a simple question for you this morning the passage is ephesians 2 8 through 10 it says god saved you by his grace when you believed saved by grace through faith you can't take credit for it it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. I love that this passage lays out the relationship between grace and faith and works. When we experience God's grace, we come to him in faith. And because of that, because of that, he saves us. And he prepares us a ministry, a work to do. It's not that we're saved because of that. We do those things as a result of our salvation. And so my simple question for you is, do you have faith? Do you have a faith that saves? Do you really know not just about Jesus? Do you really know Jesus? Is he your Lord and Savior? Has your life changed as a result of what he has done? Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we have talked about faith today, if we, as we have talked about living on the mountaintop, my prayer is that for all of us, we would learn to, to trust you. And whether we're on the valley or whether we're on the mountaintop, it's still all about faith. It's all about knowing who you are and learning to walk with you. So my prayer today, Lord, is that every person listening online, everybody here today would be able to say with confidence that I have faith. I know Jesus. I don't have to worry about him saying, depart from me for I never knew you. I know Jesus. I know I have a relationship with him, a relationship where we talk and where he speaks into my life and changes me and where he challenges me through scripture. This is this is a, a, a living faith. This is a faith that changes us day by day. It's a faith where we're transformed to be more like Jesus. And it all starts with committing ourselves. It all starts with surrendering ourselves. It all starts with acknowledging who Jesus is. That's why the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's acknowledging who Jesus is. It's about believing that God raised him from the dead. It's about understanding Jesus is really who he said he was. 
And so if you're here today and you don't have faith, or if you're not sure about your faith, or if you're still living on the faith of your parents or your grandparents or your community, would today be that day where you make it personal, you make it real? Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm not good enough. I know that I'm not perfect enough. I know that I fall short of your glorious plan time after time after time. And yet that's why you came to be one of us, to do what we could not do, to go to the cross on our behalf, to live that perfect life, to die the death that we really deserve. And because of that, Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. I believe, I trust, I put my faith in you and in you alone to save me. Now help me, Jesus, to live for you. Help to change me from the inside out. Help me to learn to live my life as a, as a disciple who makes other disciples. Lord, I, I want to follow you. I want you to be the Lord of my life, my master, my ruler, the one in charge. I want you to control my life. And, and Lord, I just want to surrender to your will to do the good works that you have prepared for me. If that's your prayer, Jesus heard it. And Jesus answered it today. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We're thankful for church where we can come and learn together. But Lord, help us realize that we're a movement. Church is so much more. We're a movement of people on mission for God. Help us to live like it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.